Hi, everyone. Chuck Gatica here for a Healthier Michigan podcast. For the next few episodes, we'll be bringing you conversations from the Mackinac Policy Conference. This year, the conference is exploring three pillars for reimagining a healthy Michigan. We thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to attendees about the hurdles they've overcome the past 18 months and what they're doing to positively impact the health of Michiganders. We hope you enjoy these bonus episodes. Today, we'll be talking with President and Chief Executive Officer of Michigan Humane, Matt Pepper, Executive Director of the Detroit Regional Dollars for Scholars, Krista Funk, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Children's Foundation, Larry Burns, Chairman of the Board for the Detroit Zoological Society and Detroit Zoo, Tony Early, and the President of the Small Business Association of Michigan, Brian Kelly. First up is President and Chief Executive Officer of Michigan Humane, Matt Pepper. Good to see you, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always good to see you and all the good work that you do. And here we are in this pandemic season, hopefully coming out. But have we heard so much about pets, right? So much about people being home, how they've adopted more, how they've gotten more pets. Tell us what you're really seeing from your vantage point. Well, first of all, I know that I'm talking to a dog lover myself. So an animal lover. And, we and also have lover in general. Cookie Girl Squeaky, the uh, guinea pig, lives in the basement. We thought it was a grandchild thing. It's ours. So we have all kinds of animals. <laughs> well, when you're ready for more, I know okay. a guy. Okay. okay. But yeah, no, we've, it's been an interesting year for everyone. And I think what we have seen through the pandemic is that the value of our work has been elevated in the community. Yeah. And what I mean is, uh, I mean, think about a child who one day was at school and the next minute they're at home and don't know what happens other than they can't go see their friends anymore. Sure. And think about the value of, of that pet in that home, the emotional support, physical support, a reason to get out and walk. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really have seen our work elevated from adoptions to outreach to our veterinary centers. Animals have never been more important to people's lives than they are right now. And why did that take a pandemic for us to get to that point? What do you think it was that pushed? Was it the staying at home component that was a good part of that? Oh, I think you had people who had been thinking about it for a yeah. while and, th and then found they had some time. I also think in reality, you probably had some people who were struggling and needed some companionship. Interesting, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of a story that's, that just touched my heart about the value of our work. So there's a woman by the name of Cynthia who is uh, taking advantage of our pet food pantry. She has no legs and one arm. And with a wheelchair and bus, got her way from the east side of Detroit to our pet food pantry because her cats needed food. Wow. Now, imagine the isolation that we've all felt over the last year. Imagine that woman's life without her pets. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. the same. There's no quality of life. Those were her companionships. Those cats got her through. And can I tell you, this is a really interesting twist that I've seen emerging because I had senior parents. Sadly, we lost both of them. Toward the end of my mom's life in Alzheimer's, my sister bought her one of those fake little cats that looks like it's breathing, in a, or a little puppy, actually. I look at this trend, and I thought to myself, I know my mom would not be capable of taking care of a real animal, so you've got to be careful what you wish for. But at the same time, this is a fake little animal, and how impactful that was on her life, and now just do an equal sign to how pets affect our lives on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, you see stories of that, you know, all the time yeah. and, and you see the impact that they have on our lives. I mean, very real physical benefits. I mean, we're <laughs> right. all stressed out. American Heart Association says petting a dog for 10 minutes will lower your blood pressure by 10%. Yep. If you have a dog, you're 31% less likely to die of heart attack or stroke. You're 35% more likely to be active 
all things that are good, all things that really create a healthier community. For you and the pet. 100%. Right? I mean, yeah. I've gained a little bit of weight over the pandemic, and my dog is, is sharing sympathy weight with me, so we'll have to get out more walks. I have a friend in Grand Rapids who's got a therapy dog, and she said she can literally, on command, the dog will jump up, kind of weasel his way under the oxygen line or whatever, and she can physically watch the pulse and blood pressure reduce, even if they're not apparently awake. Yeah. And I thought, holy cow, is that wild? Life is better with pets. Yeah. And I think what we're realizing is this community is better with pets. This community is safer. This community is healthier. If we can instill more pet-friendly practices into this community, we can create better communities and a higher yeah. quality of life for everyone. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the neighborhoods and, and you know, historically... You know, our work was a dog would come into us broken and, and we would fix it and, and a loving home would come in and that'd be the end of the story. But reality is that's not the end of the story. Now that family's going to be more active in the community. Mm -hmm. The kids have that mm -hmm. dog to help rely and get them through tough times. And we need to provide them space to do that, safe space in the neighborhoods to do that. It becomes your pal. That's your, you know. 100%. Yeah. Well, tell us what you're seeing from the Michigan Humane side so that we see this increase. Are you seeing any animals come back to you because of any other trends now, people going back to work or not so much? Just yeah, no, we're we're absolutely seeing these becoming uh, lifelong partnerships. Yeah, so that's awesome. Our return rate of adoption. So first of all, let's start about adoptions. We've seen record numbers this year of adoptions. I mean, that's we're, a good we're, thing. We're, that's a <laughs> yeah. great thing. Yeah. And we should be promoting pet ownership of any kind, whether it's from us, another organization, however you get it. Sure. Add a pet to your life. But we're seeing record numbers of adoptions, and we're actually seeing a lower than average return rate in adoptions of between six and 10%, which is which is actually pretty good. The national average can be between 15 and 25. Mm -hmm. So we're doing really well there in terms of adoptions and just it's incredible to see people outside, people enjoying this and people uh, taking advantage of an opportunity. As, as a matter of fact, one of the things that we're finding with some of our corporate partners is the biggest challenge to bringing the workplace back to somewhat of a pseudo normal in-person workforce is not childcare, it's not schools, it's I got a dog during the pandemic, I don't know what to do with it now. Wow. So you're seeing organizations think about is doggy daycare a benefit I have to consider in order to get my workforce back. Well, are you seeing any trend at all of some businesses? It may not be appropriate for everybody. You can't necessarily bring your dog on the line and build the car, but are some businesses allowing pets coming to work? Oh, absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm reminded of our vice chair of our board of directors, Cindy Paskey and Strategic Staffing Solutions, oh, yeah. who when they moved into the Fisher building, they made them guarantee the whole building would be pet friendly. So they've, no I often kidding. argue that that Strategic Staffing Solutions is the <laughs> wow. second largest shelter in Detroit outside of our facility. <laughs> But you, you are seeing that. You're seeing it as a way to engage employees. There's some real data around this new workforce, this new generation of workforce that one study by one of the insurance companies was that 72% of people in their 20s would take an equal or lesser paying job for an animal-friendly organization in an animal-friendly community that more than 80% of people who bought a house bought one for their dog or for a dog they might get. People are choosing where to live and who to work for based on the pet-friendly practices in that community. And that's where I think Detroit and Metro Detroit has to get better. We have to consider that as part of the prospects of being a better community. And do you see ancillary benefits? And maybe the, I'm off the reservation here on this idea, but do you see Chewy.com seems to go up? A veterinarian business seems to be better. Maybe now it's doggy daycare or grooming. I mean, it seems like there are these pockets that are firing off where you want to care for your animals in the best way you can. Yeah, there's this year, I think I read from the, the American Pet Products Association that Americans have spent $109 billion on their dogs this year. Oh. I sometimes feel like I'm half of that every once in a while, but, <laughs> but there's a lot of money being spent 
on pets and doggy yeah. daycares, uh, boarding facilities. One of the issues we're facing with as an industry is a shortage of veterinarians. The Michigan Veterinary Medical Association cites as many as 18 openings for every one veterinarian looking for a job right now. So being able to have enough trained veterinarians yeah. and licensed vet techs to care for this increase in pet ownership is going to be a challenge moving forward. So what particular tips would you give to anyone listening about this idea of transitioning back to work? Because it's still an ongoing process, but we've got our pals at home that we want to take care of. What, do you have specific tips? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So start slow. Yeah. Start to acclimate your dog or your cat, really. I mean, we, we often exclude cats from this because they tend to be a little dependent. What's the statement? Dogs have uh, owners and cats have staff. So <laughs> primarily we're talking about dogs. And the reality is... Um, you know, start slow. Start to acclimate them some time alone. You not being there. If you use a crate, start to acclimate them back yeah. to that. And then start to figure out what you're going to do. If it's going to be daycare, maybe do some trial runs, you know, reinforce some positive behaviors. Just start to slowly acclimate. Don't make it a light switch where you're gone one day and because that's when you're going to run into those behavioral issues that lead to people struggling to keep their pet. And, and we want these pets in homes for a long time. And I would think that there are some people who still think they'd like to have a dog, but could help the neighbor two doors down keep an eye on the dog while they're at work. What a great way to dip your toe in the deep end of the pool before you jump in, right? I mean, oh, get to, you could yeah. be helping somebody with their own daycare while you're getting used to some pet down the block who you didn't even know about. If you put a sign in your front yard that says, <laughs> I'm here to watch your dog, you'd yeah. have a line of people all day waiting for you. Yeah. Um, you know, walking dogs, things like that. And for us, it's a foster with us. If you think you might want to consider a dog, we've got so many, hundreds of animals at any given time yeah. are in foster care. Maybe it's medical, maybe it's behavior, maybe it's just too young. Give it a shot. Somebody once asked me how many foster homes you have, and I said, we have several thousand. How many animals in foster care? And it's 150, 200. Why the difference? I said, because people usually foster once, and that dog ends up becoming a permanent addition to the yeah. family. So Yeah. Well, give us a way for everybody to get in touch with you then if they want to help out, volunteer, make a donation, or come to foster a dog. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So first of all, anything people can do to support what we do, you're helping. Be a voice for animals. Be a voice for your community. You can donate, you can volunteer, mm -hmm. you can adopt, you can come to our events, you can support us in any way. It's Our phone number is 866-MHUMANE. If you have any animal issues or are struggling in any way, we're here to help you. And it's uh, michiganhumane.org is our website. Beautiful. Well, I hope everybody gets in touch, and we're just so glad to see you again. Thanks uh, for thank all you, you do. Yep. Take care of those dogs, Chuck. Okay, thanks. Yeah. See ya. Next up is Executive Director of the Detroit Regional Dollars for Scholars, Krista Funk. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. You're doing well? Doing great. Congratulations. Recently, a new baby in the family, right? Yep, thank you. Gotta be excited and not sleeping much when you're home. <laughs> she's actually sleeping great. Is she? So, yeah, oh, she's been great. amazing. <laughs> yeah, our kids are going through that now, too. So, for the most part, they're blessed, too. They've got somebody who goes to sleep early and kind of wakes up later, so... That's All is good. Can't ask for anything yeah. more. We have five. I don't think it went quite that way to begin with. So That's uh, a lot. <laughs> education has shifted during COVID, but it's still just as critical for so many families. And we look at a healthy future for Michiganders and people that are dealing with this. Tell us about Dollars for Scholars, what that means, and how you impact families and eventually kids. Of course, yeah. So Dollars for Scholars has been around for 30 years. Um, started back in the Ypsilanti area, working with students just at Ypsilanti High School. And our board saw that they wanted to make an impact across the region. And so they've expanded with a vision of 25 high schools, a million dollars in scholarships every single year. Wow. And that would be 250 graduating seniors through our program each year too. But right now we're at 14 high schools. We've got about 400 students across our three grade levels that we serve. And we're, we're really taking students that are first in their families to go to college, so first generation college students, and really getting them to see the opportunities that they have for themselves. So going out and 
seeing themselves on a college campus, really beginning to to understand what that looks like for them, all the different pathways and, and ways that they can get there. And we really look to make sure that they have all the support that they need to get all those all those questions answered. You know, filling out the FAFSA is hard. Filling out yeah. you know, college applications is challenging. And so we really look to be that, that guidepost for them. So it sounds like there's a lot more than dollars. I mean, you've got mentorship. You're walking alongside these young people, right, to encourage their futures. How does that manifest? What does that mean? Somebody's coaching them or what? Yeah, for sure. So we have a program. It's called the Next Level Scholars Program. So we start with 10th grade students. Um, really looking to inspire them, get their eyes open, see what the possibilities are, yeah. bring them onto college campuses. And then 11th grade and 12th grade, we work on, on actually getting those things done. So we do an etiquette and leadership training. We do FAFSA completion. We do financial literacy training. We do mm. all those different steps that they need. And then once they graduate high school, they get a $4,000 scholarship from us. And then we follow them through into post-secondary education with college coaching. So that's, you know, we've got an alumni that came back and she serves our college coach and is texting students every day, calling them, making sure, you know, if they need to submit a a bill for something, they've got the right contact, they can find the right office and, and really walking alongside them until graduation. So when you think of barriers to higher education, you would think that that's maybe barriers that are out there. But what you're talking about too is working with people. So even barriers, and we all go through this as individuals, I've got a a block, you know, where I can't get to the next level. You're creating friendships and mentorship that could actually last way beyond college for some of these kids. Of course. Yeah. And we see our alumni come back and that's my favorite thing. We hosted an event uh, this past Wednesday and we had about seven alumni who were being our ambassadors for all the guests that join us. And they're instantly back in chatting with one another, excited to see one another. You're talking about, oh, like at U of M, I've been doing this or at Eastern, Mm -hmm. I joined this fraternity and look at this cool service project I've done and they're really creating a good network for one another. So during the pandemic, what have you seen with these barriers to education or the mind shifts that have occurred? What are you seeing of good things that are happening and then maybe some roadblocks that have popped up? For sure. So I think our students have been able to really kind of see what they could do in terms of growth and thinking outside the box. So a lot of them went through our program thinking, okay, I'm going to go to this college campus. I'm going to, you know, join these clubs, do these specific things, walk to class, you know? Yeah. And so they really had to think about different ways to accomplish those things. And I think we saw a lot of our students, you know, see that they had other aspirations just outside of what they had initially thought. And they Mm -hmm. took that time to see what else they could do, see other careers. But I think in terms of barriers, it's been really, really challenging. We started an alumni emergency fund right as the pandemic hit because we had students that were, you know, not able to get home. So we were buying, you know, flights home from, you know, college campuses where they just shut down or we were buying, you know, meals for students because, you know, those universities shut down everything, you know, in the blink of an eye and didn't necessarily have time to think about those kids that couldn't get home. And so we were buying laptops because... You know, we have all those computer labs shut down and you can't take a virtual class from home if you don't have a laptop and access to internet. And so there are a lot of those basic necessities that students needed. And so our organization was excited to partner with the Jamie and Jacob Family Foundation to provide those things so easily. So we got a call, you know, because we built those relationships and I need X, Y, and Z and we could make that, you know, within the hour, find a solution for us. And outside of laptops, and what a blessing to figure that out in an hour, but where is the money generally coming from? Is it grants? Is it a combination? So it's a combination. Um, We do a lot of private fundraising and we've got a huge event, a celebration luncheon in March each year where we raise the majority of our funds, um, but we work with all sorts of different foundations to really make sure we have have what we need. 
Yeah. And what else do you need now? Is there anything in particular that you uh, obviously looking for money is not a bad thing to look for, <laughs> right? But anything else in particular as we hope we're coming out of this pandemic? For sure. I think um, one thing we're looking to expand is our alumni network's access to, to future jobs. So we're looking okay. at trying to connect our students with employers that are looking for you know great students that, that have gone through this, yeah. this program and come out with a degree and are ready to work. Um, we're also looking at building up our post-secondary partnerships. So you know, we offer a lot to our students and they offer a lot to the universities and the community colleges and the trade schools that they go to. And so we're looking to try to build that up more so that we have, you know, even better wraparound services for our students. So it's not just us looking out for them, but it's also, mm-hmm. you know, the colleges, you know, connecting them to the programs that they already have on campus and making sure that they have everything that they need to be successful. Well, congrats on all the great stuff that's going on. And we hope that you continue to see a bright future, even as we go through this pandemic and come out the other side for all the right reasons. Thank you yeah. so much. Krista Funk with us, Executive Director of the Detroit Regional Dollars for Scholars. Take good care. Thank you. You too. And now, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Children's Foundation, Larry Burns. Good to see you again. Chuck, it's always great to see you. Good to be with people, huh? Yes, absolutely. This has been a great conference. It's not over yet, and right now this is my highlight. Oh, well, that's very nice of you to say. To see you and and talk about some uh, good programs. Well, and I know there's really a a headline here that kind of pops to the top. So Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has joined forces with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan Foundation, the Children's Foundation, Michigan Health Endowment Fund, and the Ethel and James Flynn Foundation to establish the Suicide Prevention Support for Healthcare Clinics, working with Michigan's health disparate populations in December of 2020. So this goes back a little ways, but this is a combination. Is it unique that all those partners would get together for an Well, effort? it's not quite unique anymore, but it is something that the Children's Foundation is embracing wholeheartedly. Yeah. I like to say that, you know, we can do more together. One plus one might equals four. Mm-hmm. And Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and the foundation have been leading the way in bringing these organizations together. Flynn Foundation, as you mentioned, Michigan Health Endowment Fund. We do things with them individually, Mm -hmm. but with Blue Cross's leadership, we came together to do some great programming and to support things that are important to all of us. And I don't know how I can say this well, the notion that coming through this pandemic and how it's related to mental health issues, anxiety, Suicide. This is not just in young people, but we see the stats even in older folks as well. But this idea of combining these efforts to aim a highly focused, you know, laser beam at this idea of suicide prevention and talking about the stats directly, because there's got to be so much going on. There is. And the pandemic has really brought it to the uh, forefront of certainly the Children's Foundation. Mental health, As you know, because you've helped us launch our brand that we have five focus areas. Mental health is one of them, and over the last two years at least, it has to be the one that rises to the top Mm. all the time for the reasons you mentioned. And and this collaboration with these great organizations and foundations is really trying to look at populations that are identified with disparities and availability of care. And we all know that the underserved many times have more challenges for health care than other folks, be it transportation, be it access, and then you put in mental health, and it just makes the problem that much more serious. 
And so it's not just a coordination of foundations getting together. Now you're also trying to figure out ways for the appropriateness of medical, social, and behavioral services and how they interact together. So it's not one-stop shopping, but yet someone may have a particular issue and they didn't quite know where to go. So Exactly. And particularly in the mental health arena, trying to have a pathway to diagnosis and care mm. is extremely difficult. If it is something like heart disease or, God forbid, cancer, then yeah. the pathway is pretty clear. But in mental health, everything from autism to depression and suicide thoughts, it's not clear. Many pediatricians are not trained to deal with this as best as they could, and so they sometimes don't know where to send people. And so what we're trying to do is collectively create a path that is clear that is going to help people as soon as possible. And you know, that's so important for us as family members and caregivers too, because to your point, a broken arm, I can, I'll get you to the hospital right. and get it fixed. But if you've got some anxiety or depression issues, it's hard to say, snap out of that. Exactly. And, and as I'm sure you've heard that throughout the state of Michigan and beyond, our emergency rooms yeah. have kids and young adults brought in in crisis, mental health crisis, and might stay for two, three, four weeks at a time because there's not enough places for them to go next. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what we're collectively trying to, over time, resolve as well, is to have more facilities and more long-term care for broken arm, you can hopefully fix in right. a couple months, but if you have some other issues with mental health, it. it it's not that quick, unfortunately. So as you look to the future, even coming out of the pandemic and beyond the idea of children's health and well-being, it's important beyond the actual notion that it's about our future, because it is with right. kids, right? But there right. are so many other reasons it's important. If you've got a child that's a little off or requiring care, that can affect the entire family unit. It does. It impacts siblings. It impacts mom and dad. In yeah. many cases, as you know, in the underserved communities, it might be a grandparent. So it might be somebody that's older yeah. having to uh, deal with this situation, and, and it just causes more and more problems. I, the reason I have so much passion for identifying youngsters with mental health issues ASAP is because children with mental health issues that are not diagnosed, not cared for, they become adults with mental health issues. And if we can get to them early we can help them get on the path to healthy, happy lives. And so that's what this consortium is all about, particularly in the suicide area. Yeah, and if, for people listening, where would they go to find this roadmap to healthfulness? Well, you can start by going to our website, yeah. thechildrensfoundation.org, and there's ways that we can direct people to the right places. We have 130 partners across the state now, and many of those are providing service every day for mental health. So we can always help direct families to the right partner that we have. Great stuff. Good to see you yeah. again, Larry. Great seeing you, Chuck. Always a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Next up is chairman of the board for the Detroit Zoological Society and Detroit Zoo, Tony Early. It's so good to see you. Good to be here, Chuck. You're doing Thanks well? For me. I am doing very well. Isn't it nice to be somewhere where you can actually see people and we can shake hands or fist bump or something just with other people. Though when they have their masks on, it's hard to recognize them. So <laughs> I think everyone's gotten in the habit of 
saying their names so you know who it is when they walk up. Yeah, there. yeah. So talk to us about the zoo. How are things going at the zoo? Because, you know, we're in a point where a lot of us feel comfortable even being at a conference. But for goodness sakes, a large part of visiting the Detroit Zoo is outdoors. But give us an update on how things are going. Well, it's been an amazing year and a half for the zoo. And, you know, if you had told me when the pandemic started, we would be in as good a shape as we are now. I would have said, no, that's impossible. But the mm-hmm. zoo has come through it with a lot of hard work from the leadership team there. Ron Kagan and his team have Mm -hmm. done an amazing job, both financially and from a health and safety standpoint, because there are a lot of issues that we had to deal with. Yeah. And in the midst of all this, you're still bringing in new exhibits and animals. And I mean, the work seems to have not stopped, really. That's right. And we were planning some new exhibits coming up. And we're excited about that. We had to slow down some of the efforts, but now they're picking up again as uh, we start to open up the zoo. Yeah. Talk to us about this idea that animals can get COVID and what does that mean with human interaction? Because it's been a question, you know, like even at the beginning, I was, I was thinking my dog could have it. Well, I'm not really sure that's true, but. Well, that was my, the first revelation in COVID when Ron Kagan called me up and said, you know, Tony, animals can get COVID too. Hmm. And it had actually tremendous ramifications for the zoo because not only did we have to make sure that our visitors were protected when we reopened the zoo but we had to protect the animals so our keepers had to be very careful they all took precautions wore ppe we've even now gone to where we're vaccinating some of the animals Mm. and there are certain species that are very susceptible obviously things like gorillas and chimpanzees they're so close to humans it's pretty certain that they can and will get it if they're exposed to it. But other animals, like big cats, the uh, Bronx Zoo in New York had several of their tigers. Uh, Did get they? COVID. Yeah. they? They survived it, but you know, had some fairly serious respiratory problems. And there's a list of a couple of dozen other different types of animals that, that can get it. So we've been very careful about yeah. making sure that the animals are protected as well as uh, the public when they come visit. Well, and that's good to know as a visitor to the zoo, what other considerations have you had to put into place? What else have you done for safety for your own team and for us? Well, for our own team, first of all, more than 90% of our zookeepers have all been vaccinated. Okay. They wear protective gear, not only masks, but they wear the gloves. They make sure they sanitize everything when they're dealing with the animals. For a long time, our inside venues there were all closed. Now we've started to open them up, but we've do ask that patrons wear masks when they're inside. And we haven't had, we used to have a lot of interest in the feeding of the animals and you could come and feed the giraffes and feed Mm -hmm. the penguins, very, very popular events. But we've had to cut way back on those. And in fact, we stopped them completely. We do a couple here and there, but we just wanted to limit the interaction between the public and the animals. Now that we're starting to vaccinate some of the animals, I think by the end of this month, we'll have over 50 of our animals who are in the susceptible categories vaccinated. We'll feel a lot better about that. Yeah. And how does that work with vaccinating a tiger? It's like you go in and do it. I, <laughs> yeah. I'll watch you from over here. Well, <laughs> right after the pandemic started, when Ron called me and said, you know, animals can get COVID, I said, Ron, you know, if the silverback gorilla starts to wheeze, swabbing its nose is not in my job description. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have to obviously sedate the, the bigger animals and deal with them for the vaccinations, but they get shots routinely for various things. So they're used to it. And we've got a great veterinary staff. 
So I mentioned to you not that long ago I was at the zoo with my kids. So, I mean, I'm following footprints and I'm seeing people with strollers. I mean, there is a reflection as you look around that there is some normalcy that's returned because you are mostly an outdoor venue, right? So uh, we head into fall in Michigan. What a great time to see the zoo. That's right. And one of the things that we discovered during the early months as we just started to reopen the zoo, how much of a sanctuary it was for our customers. Mm. Families would tell us, you know, they get the kids out of the house, yeah. get them thinking about other things, mm-hmm. uh, looking fresh at air. animals, fresh air, nature, yeah. that it was a major part of their daily routine. In fact, we had waiting lists. Originally, when we opened up the zoo, we had a limit to the number of people that could come in during the day, and we mm-hmm. keep track of that. And during that time period, we had waiting lists for people to yeah. come into the zoo. In fact, it's been so popular now as part of some of our long-range planning, we're going to be designing and installing what we're going to call reflection areas, which will be areas of the zoo that have some seating, quiet area. You can come and sit and look at nature and and just contemplate it because it was so popular to just come to the zoo and and hang out. But there's so much in research that says that, you know, some people call it forest bathing. Pilots say they take a flight on a blue sky day just for their mental health. I mean, there's so much that supports that idea that it is a great place to relax. That's really true. And in in a city like ours, where there are a lot of families uh, who live in the city and they don't really get to see nature that much, that it's a real revelation to them when they come to the zoo. And as you know, the zoo is not only a place where you can see really interesting animals, but the gardens are tremendous. And right. They, they still are. And so it's a place where people can see and be in nature and enjoy themselves. Well, I know I'm back at least in October for a big walk, a fundraising walk for Alzheimer's. So I can't wait and uh, see a bunch of people with us who are doing good while they're enjoying themselves. Well, that's great of you to do that. And I think everyone will really be pleased to see people out at the zoo doing regular activities. We're hoping we can get back to a more normal schedule of all the things because our outreach activities are always an important part of this. Yeah. The, the camps, the education piece. During the pandemic, our education outreach was incredibly important because teachers, parents, kids were all looking for things to do. The teachers were looking for what are they going to teach in their science classes. And the zoo's educational team did a great job in preparing materials, sending them out, doing websites. I know some of my grandkids in Chicago used to tune into the Detroit Zoo programs we had. Well, and all parents kind of turned into teachers there for a while. Maybe still. That's correct. I think it's still going on in some school districts. Well, Tony Early, it's great to see you. Thanks for all you do, and thanks for the Detroit Zoo. Chuck, thank you for having me. Sure thing. And finally, President of the Small Business Association of Michigan, Brian Kelly. Good to see you again. Pleasure to be back with you. Thanks for having me. two years ago. It's amazing that that's how long ago it was where we sat down and had another one of these conversations. Time flies, but it's nice to be back on the island. You know, I've been up here just once in the last year, and it, especially when I was serving in office, I'd be on the island 10 times a year. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. so to kind of be back, it's a little bit of nostalgic feeling about it. So, uh, But it's great to see everybody doing so well here. You mm-hmm. know, we see the, mm-hmm. uh, the business community on the island has really stepped up and responded well to the pandemic and came together in a way that I think was really special. It was a really cool story of a sub-economy 
and mm-hmm. Michigan that touches a lot of people. And even the bracelets we have. I think the Chamber's done a great job giving us some comfort in navigating with real people again, you know, which is nice. Yeah, it was the determination just to make the decision, we are moving forward with this conference, that mm-hmm. we're not going to put it off again. That took a lot of courage for both the Detroit Regional Chamber, but also for their main sponsors Yeah, to take the risk and say, you know, we've got to figure out how to continue to connect and work and build relationships and in a strong economy in spite of the fact that we're still dealing with the COVID-19 virus. So it's a, I think it's a testament to some strong leadership in the business community that we're moving forward. We're going to keep on living. So it's an understatement to say that the pandemic affected small business because it's affected all business. But what were you doing? How did you jump in when you saw this thing unfolding? from the small business side, because there's so much we can think about. Yeah, and so much of the impact overall, the harshest impact were on the industries that are dominated by small businesses. So Mm -hmm. the service sector and uh, bringing people together, tourism, convention type, you know, the whole ecosystem around gatherings of people that couldn't happen for a long time. And then business districts and downtown areas where used to be thousands of office workers were there and then that traffic is gone that small businesses have had a lot to deal with and face a more difficult challenge moving forward. We decided in the beginning that we would kind of a no-no in uh, association land. We took down all the paywalls. We served everybody as though they were a member, any small business, and we converted the entire staff into a direct customer service facing staff to just to listen and to interpret the ever-changing and complicated executive orders. And one of the few organizations that did that would talk through, okay, here's how we think, you know, the orders were written in a certain way. How does that apply to a specific business? And there's a lot of guesswork at that point, but we have very experienced staff and we decided to take the risk and think through it with members on a one-on-one basis. And so all 28 members of our association became customer service operators and 24-7, seven days a week, literally around the clock. When they reached out, we were there and available. But, you know, even in real life as families, having a coach, having a person you can just talk to for a minute, that had to be helpful all by itself outside of stepping somebody through paperwork or all the stuff, the formatics, right? One of the things that we learned early on is that directing somebody to a website was not an acceptable way to go. Mm. Like, hey, you can read the rule here. And so it was important to hear people's story. I mean, this is, we say small business, but no business is small to the owner. It's their whole life is wrapped up in it. It's everything to them. And so the idea that we would take the time to just listen to them because it's a special and unique story of the struggle that they face. So the first thing is to listen. And then the next thing is to think through, okay, given this order came out, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do with it. Just as an example, I remember one of them that I was talking to said, you know, I have a convenience store, gas station, fountain pop. Do I use the retail rules or do I use the restaurant Mm. rules for the food section in my convenience store, gas station? And there was nothing that said what the right answer was. So what we did was just think through it with them and then to talk through a a potential plan and say, you know, if you're questioned on this, you're going to have an answer, right? You're Mm -hmm. You're going to show that you weren't disregarding rules. You were trying to follow them in good faith. And here's how I interpreted it. Document that and you'll be okay. When word got out that we were doing that, it really drove a lot of people to us. And we met a lot of small businesses that we'd never been associated Mm. with in the past. 
So it ended up being a strong growth period for the Small Business Association. So there are a lot of small businesses that are in health and wellness, you know, spas and other things. But as you look forward now, this year into 2022, what do you see is the role for small business with the health of not just, you know, the owner and their staff, but for patrons and the state in general? Moving forward, I think more and more epidemiologists are coming to the conclusion that, you know, this is not a pandemic anymore. It's an endemic. I mean, it's it's something that we're going to have to figure out how to deal with on mm. an ongoing basis, or at least for the foreseeable future. And so that means that there are different types of rules in, uh, in setups. So this conference is a good example of thinking through and coming up with a way to create a safe environment and then to have the discipline to carry through on the plans. But the other thing that I really liked about the approach that was taken here was the respect for a person's preference and how comfortable they are engaging. And so something as simple as a color-coded bracelet, mm-hmm. you know, I'm wearing one that's green, and that yeah, means me too. come yeah. hug me, come shake my hand, you know, I'm glad to see you, and I happen to be fully vaccinated, I, you know, I have a lot of confidence in that. Yeah. But there are others that are still fearful or have other reasons why they don't really want to engage at that level. So mm-hmm. they might be wearing a red wristband. You know, it's just something to, to help us visually take in a message and to still engage with people, but maybe engage in a different way. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of things are being tried out right now. New practices and, and approaches to gathering with people. But what I'm most thankful for is just the determination that we can't live life separate forever. People need to be with other people. And uh, it's an important aspect of mental health and human development. Mm -hmm. And it also happens to be essential for business development. And uh, it's all relationships. Every aspect of our lives really boils down to relationships. And that's why I I like this idea. We're going to respect people's different varying levels of comfort. But we're also going to create opportunities to get people together. So moving forward, what can we all do to be encouragers? for small business owners and the employees there. Obviously, you go to a restaurant, you want to tip someone who's come back, you want to say hi to your favorite weight person that was there that you used to see at the Coney for breakfast. So, I mean, there are things that are just common sense. But what can we do? Is it literally saying kind words and and participating in local businesses? Is, Is that enough or are there other ways we can help? The pandemic has resulted in a push away from small businesses in a lot of ways. And and so I think it's going to take some discipline and intentional effort among people to consider, okay, I've got a gooder service that I need to buy. Is there somebody more local to me that I yeah. can buy from? Yeah. The nature of the pandemic has pushed so much toward, like, say, Amazon and away from kind of that local relationship. And it's easy to settle into that as your regular habits. Yeah. And I think that's a big vulnerability that small businesses have, the ones who are located locally, investing locally, vested in the community locally. Um, they treat it like family because it's literally family, right? It's, it's where right. they're raising their family. And and so I think there's there's a lot to be lost by losing a strong local fa- flavor in the economy. And so going out of your way to consider, is there somebody local, somebody and local usually means smaller than the big, sure. the bigger national players. But, but is there somebody local that I can keep more of the economic activity generated by my own buying to be in a place that affects my community? And small business is the best way to do that. And I think to your point, the off-ramps, or maybe it's the 
tentacles that go out. I can't think of a car dealership maybe that doesn't support a local kids baseball team or something. You know, there's always this extension of you're participating in local business, but how many other things do they do? Because that's part of who they are as well. Yeah, and you see that, like, go to a Friday night high school football game and you'll see the you know the sponsors on the fence and and there'll be signs of the local businesses and the thing is like that's the school where their kids went right (laughs) i mean it's something that um, you're doing business with people that you know people that have the same type of investment in the community same type of determination to make sure that it's strong so yeah it has a lot of philanthropic ramifications has economic ramifications but i think that the most important thing to do you, you can't get everything locally and so there's an understanding that, you know, naturally, and there's nothing wrong with people doing business with big national or international players. You know, it's an important part of our economy and small businesses are part of those supply chains too. Yeah. Um, so it, it all works together. But I think this day more than ever in the past, it just takes a little extra consideration and okay, I'm going to buy something. Am I going to go online and buy it from far away? Or is there anybody in my local area because you know even the smaller companies they have online procurement they do delivery yeah so it's just a matter of maybe trying to break that habit that formed in the pandemic when we were trying Mm -hmm. to stay far away from people and get back to keeping that money local well brian kelly good to see you thanks for the wisdom and the encouragement yeah thank you take good care Thanks for listening to a Healthier Michigan podcast brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. If you like our show and you want to know more, check out a healthiermichigan.org slash podcast or leave us a review or rating on iTunes or Stitcher. To get new episodes on your smartphone or tablet, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.